As we come now before God's word, if you'd like to read with me, I'll be in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 39. We're here this morning in Isaiah chapter 39. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, you have told us to consider the ravens that we would especially look and see that they have no barn and no storehouse, and yet you feed them, you care for them. We know that we are worth far more than the ravens. So Lord, would you feed us now? Give us the bread of your word, the food that we really need to be nourished and to be comforted. Lord, by your spirit, would you open our eyes and help us to trust in you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Isaiah in chapter 39. I want to take the whole chapter this morning. It's much shorter than previous chapters, just eight verses here. Uh, But we'll take Isaiah chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And where did they come, where did they come to you? Isaiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we've stepped into the middle of a historical account here. And so we'll need to do some work to understand what's going on in this text. We're going to need to do a little bit of sleuthing. Uh, so uh, we'll have to put on our Sherlock Holmes hat, so hope you brought it. Uh, we're going to pull out you know, our magnifying glass or whatever tools we can, we can use here to see what Isaiah really means to tell us here. So if this morning uh, you're, you're, you're looking for three points or three tidy little things, you won't find them, at least not this Sunday. Uh, what we're looking for is clues, clues to get to the bottom of, of this. So it'll be a bit of work, but it's worth it. 
It is worth the work here because we're tapping into something very deep within us. So stretch the muscles here. Are you ready to do the work with me? Uh, we've been in the middle of these chapters of Isaiah for a couple of weeks now. And in that time, we have seen that there's a remaining people of God in the land. This is the tribe of Judah, the one remnant of a tribe that's left. And over them is the King Hezekiah. So this one tribe, uh, Judah and King Hezekiah, has been threatened uh, for destruction by this world superpower that is Assyria. And the response to the threat against them, in response to that, the King Hezekiah, the King of Judah, tore his clothes. In mourning, he put on sackcloth, and he went up to the temple of the Lord. King Hezekiah went to pray to the Lord, to seek the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Hezekiah and the people are at this point, at that point, completely humbled, completely helpless, and totally at the mercy of their God. And the Lord hears their cry. The Lord hears them and responds because the Lord is trustworthy and because the Lord had predestined to do these things long ago. And so the Lord saves his people, Judah. He turns back this superpower of Assyria by a hook in the nose. The Lord rescues them and shows that he, the Lord, is the true king of kings over all things. But now, when we get to the scene that's here in chapter 39, the tone is different. It feels very different than the previous chapters, because when this opens in this chapter, all is well in the land of Judah. There's no threat of war, at least not that we hear. There's no message of destruction. You know, there's no visitor who's banging on the door with a sword saying, surrender, surrender. Instead, they get a different kind of visitor, one that brings a present. Isn't that nice? Uh, the King Hezekiah, we find out here, had been sick. The sickness was serious. It almost killed him. If you're interested, you can read it in the previous chapter. But through prayer and the mercy and grace of God, Hezekiah is fully recovered from that illness. So he's feeling good, feeling spry, like a young 20-something again, could go out hiking, get some fresh air. And, 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 and now the neighbor nation, neighbor nation of Babylon sends Hezekiah a little hallmark card, a letter and a present, the author tells us. We're not told exactly what the present was, but I'm guessing it was flowers and, you know, banana bread or, or whatever is uh, the Babylonian equivalent of that. So when, so when this present arrives, Hezekiah says, hey, Come on in. I'm glad you're here. Let me show you around on a tour of our place. And so he shows the heads of the Babylonians his treasury. He shows them his pantry, where he keeps all his spices. He shows them his armory, all of his storage closets. And he says, thanks for the banana bread. And all is well. Maybe. 
Now, if the story ended there, it'd be a nice, tidy story, and we'd wonder, why on earth is this in the Scripture? But at this point, the prophet Isaiah steps into the situation, and Isaiah seems to think that something is off. This is when Isaiah goes into Sherlock Holmes mode and begins to interrogate the king with a series of questions in verses uh, 3 and 4. So his first questions are, who was that? And what did they say? And Hezekiah responds, that was just people from the far country of Babylon. He doesn't answer what they said. I don't know whether he was hiding it or what, but he doesn't seem to mention what it was that they wanted. So then Isaiah follows up with another question. He says, what did you show them? And Hezekiah says, everything. I showed them everything. I showed them all of our wealth and all of our storehouses. What's the big deal? Isaiah seems to think there's something going on here more than just banana bread. We're not told exactly all the details, but it seems as if there is some sort of political undercurrent to this, some sort of plot that is happening here that seems to leave us as the reader with more questions than answers. We were left wondering, why did Babylon really come? Was it just to say, hey, glad you're feeling better? Or did they want to see if Judah, the land of Judah, would be a reliable political ally in overthrowing Assyria? Or perhaps they want to spy on the resources that Judah has just to see what sorts of things they bring to the table or might be up against. And then why does Hezekiah really show them all of his resources? Was it because that's just what a good host does? Someone comes to your house, you say, here's my living room, here's my bathroom? Or was it it because he wants to show Babylon that he's interested perhaps in joining in this plot? Or perhaps he just wants to brag about his power and how wealthy he has become. We don't really know the answers to these questions, but there is something more to this meeting that goes deeper than it seems on the face. When we look at the same account in the book of Chronicles, we see a, a glimpse into what else might be going on. We get a small clue. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 32, verse 27. We kind of pick up where the story is. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made for himself treasuries, silver and gold and stones and spices and shields and all kinds of costly vessels. And the author goes on. This is the same account that we've heard until we get to verse 31, where the writer says this, and so... In the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who sent him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, here's what we want. God left him, Hezekiah, God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Did you catch it? This interaction between the people of Babylon coming into Hezekiah is from God in order to test Hezekiah. 
Now, this test is not quite the way that we think of tests. You know, we're in at the end of a, a semester here, and if you've got school semesters, this is not like a final exam where you get a, a letter grade or you get a pass-fail. A test is to show what is in you. A test is to see what you're made of. So when the Lord tests Hezekiah here, he is showing what's in Hezekiah's heart. He is revealing his heart by the test. So how does Hezekiah do? What's the result of his test here? The Lord uh, knows the heart already. This is no surprise to God, but we have to use our Sherlock skills and look in close to get a clue at Hezekiah's heart here. And, and we do get a clue at the very end of our text when we hear Hezekiah's response. So Isaiah has just given the word of the Lord. He says, with I'm sure furrowed brow, Hezekiah, you showed Babylon all of the storehouses of your realm and all of those things, all of them, Babylon is going to take away from you. It is all going to be gone. So sort of like the Grinch in the house of the Whovilles, they're even going to take the log from your fire and leave nothing but some hooks and some wire. And even your own children, Hezekiah, descendants of you will be taken into exile and they will be made eunuchs to serve the king of Babylon. That's the word of the Lord here. And in hearing that, we might expect Hezekiah to respond in particular ways. We might expect Hezekiah to say, no, please no. We might expect him to say, Lord, please have mercy. Lord, would you save us? Lord, would you spare us? We might expect to hear from Hezekiah some sort of feeling of fear or perhaps grief or guilt, but we see none of those things. Instead, look at his response in verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken, that you have spoken is good. So that's what he says, and you might think, oh, well, I guess he's just trusting God here, but then we get this last sentence. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. We get a glimpse into his inner thought here, and basically, if I can word it a different way, Hezekiah goes, that's fine by me as long as I get to have peace. Whatever happens, that's fine by me as long as I get to have security in my days. This is what came out of his test. This is what came out of his heart. Now, what do we call this? Get your magnifying glass out. What do we call this thing that has come out of his heart? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it perhaps just foolish ignorance? 
mean, there's not necessarily just one answer here. Perhaps it's a combination of all of these things. Perhaps there's a lot more even going on than that. But I would suggest here there's also good reason to think what has come out of his heart here is an idol. An idol, a false god has been shown in Hezekiah's heart. These idols are not just statues or little figurines. This is something we worship. That somehow he has put peace and security as a god above God. Idols are subtle, but they are poisonous and destructive. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this in his book On Idols, Counterfeit Gods. Um, And he compares this sort of thing to the ring in The Lord of the Rings. If you're familiar with that series, you know how when you put the ring on, it does all these very bizarre things. This is what he says about it. The ring takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. Some good characters in the book, in The Lord of the Rings, want to liberate slaves or preserve their people's land or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. And these are all good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve them, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute thing that overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. For an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil. What he says here is that idols are often things that are perhaps good on their own, but have been blown out of proportion. So there may be some very good things here, even in this account with Hezekiah. I mean, it's not wrong, necessarily, on its own, to keep storehouses to have a stock of things. We know that Joseph in Egypt stored grain for seven years so that when they had seven years of famine, they would have something to eat so that the people would not starve. And all of that storehousing was blessed by God. But if the highest goal of the storehouse is to give security and that's all, that's an idol above God. And it will produce the opposite of security. In a similar way, it is not wrong necessarily on its own to make agreement with other nations. We see in the book of Ezra, Ezra arranged with the king of Persia uh, to, to get to go home, back to the land, to rebuild the temple. And that act was blessed by God. But if the highest goal of that national agreement is just to get peace, and that's it, That's an idol above God, and it will produce the opposite of peace. Because idols are often associated with good things, it is easy to justify them, at least in our minds. But that justification often comes from the blindness 
from the delusion that accompanies idols. So Isaiah, in just a few chapters later, in chapter 44, talks about uh, this man uh, who, who has a block of wood, and with half, he splits it, and half of it, he takes the wood and burns it in the fire to, to cook, to make food, and the other half he carves into a nice little idol, a god. This is what he says about him in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The man here is holding a God in his hand. And his heart, sin, is so delusional that he cannot even see the insanity that that is. How crazy it is to hold one's God in your own hand. I imagine that Hezekiah probably felt the same. This is me digging a little deeper under the surface, but I imagine so. Even though we're dealing with idols of the heart now for Hezekiah instead of idols in the hand, I imagine that if we confronted Hezekiah with the selfishness, the callousness of the statement that he made, oh, as long as I have my own peace and security, and said, Hezekiah, peace and security is an idol to you, I imagine he would deny it. Idols. No, no, no. We don't do that. I mean, the meeting with Babylon was just friends, banana bread, a nice friendly chat. You know, the Lord is, is my God. I only trust in God. But is that really true? Is Hezekiah's trust in the Lord or in his storehouses? Is Hezekiah's treasure the Lord or his storehouses? The very fact that there's a question should be troublesome to us here. In some ways, he reminds me of the, the parable of the rich fool uh, that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12. Uh, this is a man who also was living in denial. Let me read the parable here to you. Luke chapter 12. Uh, let's see. I'll pick up in verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all of my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, 
Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then he says later in verse 34, the famous line, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your true heart is. Where your treasure is, there your true love is. Where your treasure is, there your true God is. And to be clear, none of this is really about money. I mean, it's not really money that people want. I mean, money is just like pieces of paper and little chunks of metal with things printed on them. What people want is to be able to relax, to be happy, to have peace and security in my days. And those things are not necessarily wrong to desire on their own, but if we turn them into an absolute into a must-have, then they become an idol. So sometimes to get this peace and security, we look to money to get that. Or we look to family to get that. Or we look to a vacation to get that. Or we look to food to get that. Or we look to sex to get that. Whatever it is, once we begin to chase it, once we begin to crave it, once we begin to worship it and start to plug money into it like a slot machine over and over and over, then it's an idol. We might insist that we are following the Lord. Oh no, it's just banana bread. I really follow God. But underneath, we may be blind to the idols of our own heart. And sin may be marching us into exile away from our God. That we are paradoxically becoming less happy, less full of peace, and less secure in the process. So... Let me drive all this right into your living room. Flip that Sherlock magnifying glass around and turn it on, on yourself. What idols, Christian, what idols are you holding on to? What lie is in your right hand? Don't just try to convince yourself that it's only banana bread and it's not that big, that's not that big a deal. What are you prone to worship, to crave more than God? If the Lord would test you today, what would we see? And whatever that is, 
Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is that thing, is that idol really giving you the freedom, really giving you the joy, really giving you the rest that it seems to promise? Take a good look in your heart, a hard look, I know, but let the light of God shine into the deepest corners of your heart. If you really want this rooted out of your life, we need to see it there first, to be aware that these things are in us. I think it helps us even further to recognize that idols are often grown in the good times, not the bad. They're usually cultivated most in the good times. In the hardest times, we are confronted with the reality that idols are impotent, that they don't actually do anything real for us at all because the gods that we invent for ourselves can't actually save that, save us, and, and we're confronted with this. The difficulty of life then shocks us awake so that we're driven to real power, which is only found in God. So when King Hezekiah was threatened earlier, a few weeks ago, uh, by destruction through Assyria, he didn't run to some sort of security blanket, some sort of idol which he knows will do him no good. He runs straight into the temple of the Lord. There is nowhere else for him to go. Somehow the hard times made him see the true God. That should make us rethink the value of the hard things that God is giving us. That there may actually be a great amount of love and goodness that he's using to drive us to him. That in the hard times, we see the false God for what they are. But in the good times, when the illness that almost killed me is healed when the storehouses that were once empty are full, when we are seen as a desirable ally for others, that's when it's easy to slip into idolatry, to let things like peace and security become God, to trust in them instead of the Lord. And if we do that, we are harming others as well as ourselves, and we're sinning against a holy God. So where do we go from here? Where are the people of Judah supposed to go from here? I, know, I mean, I know we want to work to get rid of the idols in our lives and in our hearts, but is that it? You know, is that the goal? Just go home and dig those idols out. Chuck them out of your life. Please do that. But is that all? Is there any hope in this? I mean, the text on its own doesn't seem like a particularly hopeful text. At the end, it just kind of drops off that the days are coming when the storehouses will be cleared out, when the people will be carted off to exile in Babylon, that we're now under the fearless leadership of a king who doesn't care one lick about us as long as it doesn't affect him, as long as he has peace in his own days. That's where we're left. And yet, if you keep reading in Isaiah into the next chapter, the very first word of the very next verse in chapter 40, verse 1, the very next word is comfort. Comfort. 
comfort my people? How is that supposed to happen? I mean, the gold, the spices, the armories will all be gone. The people will be whisked away as servants. There's this king who's mainly concerned about self-protection, whose heart is full of idols, and he's no better than the rest of us. How is there supposed to be comfort in, in this? It's at this point in the book of Isaiah in which we begin to see a shift, a tilt, from setting our, us, setting our eyes on the people to now setting our eyes on the Lord. And it's in these latter chapters of Isaiah that we begin to see a figure emerge from the shadows, one that Isaiah will call my servant, whom we eventually see as Jesus. We'll be going through in coming weeks, just a few weeks here, what we call the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah begins to sing comfort over the people, that the servant is coming. And we don't even have to get out our Sherlock hat to see him. The nations will see this servant as he comes. This servant will establish justice. He will be a light to the nations in the midst of darkness. He will be so determined that his face will be set like flint. He will suffer, but he'll be vindicated, and he will be exalted as the righteous one. King Hezekiah might only care about his own peace, but this coming servant is going to be the prince of peace whose kingdom is forever. And when this servant comes, he will be crushed for our iniquities. And in the process, the idols of our hearts will be crushed with him so that he himself would be shown to be the only true God, a God who is worthy of our worship and who is far better than banana bread. Take your comfort there. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know, because you tell us it's this way in your word, that the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of facing abundance and need, is that we do all things only through Jesus. We know that you alone are God. Would you work in us now to push the idols out of our hearts so that we would love you as the true and only God? Would you work this in us now to the glory of your great name? We ask this in Jesus' name we pray.